How fitting. On First Fruits Sunday, when we give God our first and best because he, in his grace, gives us his first and best. In 1863, the year that President Lincoln established our national day of giving thanks, he opened his proclamation with these words. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings, fruitful fields, and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. Earlier in the spring of that same year, April 30, was to be set apart as a day of national prayer and humiliation. In the midst of great uncertainty, three months after the Emancipation Proclamation, and with the turning point of the Battle of Gettysburg, three months yet in the future, President Lincoln was certain of this, the nation's dependence upon God and its need for prayer. He wrote, And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions, in humble sorrow. Yet, with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. What were those national sins of which the president was painfully conscious? They were the sins of pride arising from the conviction of self-sufficiency. He wrote, intoxicated with unbroken success, We've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It's appropriate on this Sunday before our national call to honor God with thanksgiving to take the lead ourselves, to adopt a heart 
of great gratitude toward God. Will you stand with me? And let us lift our hearts unto God. Gracious Heavenly Father, from whom all blessings flow, the wise know all that is good, all that is perfect is your gift, your grace, benefiting, satisfying, exceeding our needs, material and spiritual. One need we lack. One need, deep and great, you cannot supply. Our need to become a people of unbroken thanksgiving, rightly seen, an attitude of gratitude, of reverent and heartfelt recognition, not of duty, but of dependence, rightly seen and fully understood. In the gift of Jesus, your highest grace, your greatest gift, we of all people, See the redemption of your praise and our thanksgiving. And so to you, O Father, we return praise, honor, and glory. Indeed, we give it generously in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Saw the movie Lincoln last night. It was greatly uh, liked and appreciated by me. I think because I've been reading a book about Lincoln titled Abraham Lincoln, President of American Anguish, theologian, excuse me, theologian of American Anguish. And I just wanted to add one excerpt. It was a good movie. Um, I think the book... And other readings helped me to appreciate something that uh, wasn't fully seen, but perhaps in even quoting some of his words this morning, you too now realize what a deep dependence our president had upon the providence and leading of God. Just this uh, quote, I didn't, re- I didn't share this in the first service, um, 
just before his death, as his last public address tells us, Lincoln was contemplating a tenth proclamation. Only three days before he was shot, the president made his reverent purpose known to the people. He writes, The evacuation of Petersburg and Richmond and the surrender of the principal insurgent army give hope of a righteous and speedy peace whose joyous expression cannot be restrained. In the midst of this, however, he from whom all blessings flow must not be forgotten. A call for a national thanksgiving is being prepared and will be duly promulgated. Thanksgiving Day for us as a nation is one special day. But as a people, God's people, it should become the heartbeat of our lives. Perhaps the most profound description of God's people under the power of God's grace is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I'm going to read it to us from the New American Standard Bible. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. For a moment, this moment, Let's not trouble ourselves with the moral challenge of somehow becoming like these first believers. The trick is not to mimic them, but to see God's grace. Grace that made them different. And then move beyond admiration to the same grace, abundant and available in Jesus Christ. Not for eternal bookkeeping, but for the way we see ourselves, for the way we see others, for the way we see this world, and above all, for the way we see God, the source and author of this grace. We have been in Acts, and we have emphasized writing the next chapter, chapter 29. We write the next chapter together because we are a grace community. Gratitude and thanksgiving build a grace community. That is a grace community in Acts 4.32.
And we are to show that grace. We are to show the depth of God's grace. In verse 32, the very first part, we read, and I'm reading from now the English Standard Version, because the English Standard Version gives us, in my opinion, the most plain and straightforward reading of the language that Luke used to write Acts, the Greek language. And it reads, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It does not say those who believed were of one color. It does not say that the number of those who believed, the full number, were of one class. It says those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's not likeness, but oneness of the deepest kind. Heart and soul. That's the depth of grace. Only grace, only grace, God's grace, the fact that it is coming from Him, the fact that it is His grace, only grace can disarm us, cause us to drop our weapons, Cause us to drop our defenses. We are to show the depth of God's grace. It starts in the heart and the soul, it manifests itself in the way we treat one another. It manifests itself in the way we use possessions. We are to show the triumph of God's grace. That's in the next words. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own. That's a little different translation. That's from the New English translation. But I adopt it for the same reason. No one said that any of his possessions was his own. That is a huge challenge to me. But what we see in that is the recognition of grace, the triumph. Of grace. You cannot, I cannot own grace. With the heart of ownership, we assert mine and lose sight of the very character of God's grace. 
In the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by Luke, there is a powerful, it is a bold theme. Our attitude toward possessions reveals our attitude, our heart, toward God. Our attitude towards possessions reveals our disposition toward grace and the disposition of our heart. The very word possession moves us from gift to ownership. And in that step, we focus on what is ours and lose sight of the giver. God's grace. We move from dependence to independence from God for me to us. From us to me. This is this theme is really seen across the pages in the parables of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. And then it emerges in the grace community. The people of grace, the people of Jesus, Jesus, the very heart of God, the very heart of God, who reveals His heart, His grace is shown, manifest, evident in His people. To illustrate this theme, the prodigal son stands head and shoulders above the rest in verses 11 through 32. And I'm not going to take you through all the details. But this parable, which is about God's grace, His love expressed. Grace is His love expressed in immeasurable giving. And what it tells us also is about grace being turned into a possession and its impact, its effects. Each development in the relationship between father and sons is expressed through imagery of possessions. And I owe this insight to Timothy Luke Johnson and his study. In other words, what they do with possessions, they, the father, the sons, what they do with possessions is symptomatic of their heart toward one another. The fathers toward the sons. The sons toward the Father. The Father is God. Jesus opens the parable parable with the Father and sons on the property together. The younger son asks 
for his share of the property. In verse 11, and we see the Father's grace and favor turned by the Son into ownership. Evidence of the Son's separation. His heart withdrawing from the Father when He not only gathers all He possessed and goes to another place, but ends up lost, using up His possessions. It's literally the word using up all His existence on Himself in reckless living. Verse 13. His turnaround, and this parable is familiar with with us, I know. His turnaround begins with his recognition of his poverty. And he began to be in need, we read, in verses 14 through 16. But we note these words, no one gave him anything. He recognizes that he is lost. And we note these words. Here, I am dying. Here, to the place I have gone to. Away from the place I left. With my property, owner as I am. Here, I am dying. In fact, It is there that as he takes account and assesses what has happened to him, in kind of a reverse gratitude, he acknowledges, he recognizes what he had abandoned. The abundance, the free-flowing grace of God. Grace of His Father. But we see this. The Son's return to the Father is expressed by the Father's giving to Him the family's most precious possessions. Mercy, to be sure. Mercy is, in fact, grace. In action, specific action to a specific need. A son who is not worthy. A son who has rejected his father. A son who has gone to a faraway place and squandered everything. Who is in dire condition. To him, grace is shown and it is seen as mercy. But it's grace. And we call it grace because it's, it's free. It is favor. It's not earned. It's not merited. Max Lucado, drawing attention to this very point, said mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace threw him a party. It's all of grace. But we see it as grace in all of its power. 
when we see that God lavished the prized possessions of the family on this son who had taken his grace and treated it as a possession, owned to be treated as he wanted, to be lavished on himself in separation, in isolation, turning away, turning around, returning, are all expressed by possessions. The most interesting line of all are the words uttered by the Father in His response to the elder son's complaint that such gifts had never been given to him. Child, you are always with me. And everything that belongs to me is yours. That's grace. In this parable, we see Jesus' understanding of possessions and how possessions can be a symbol not only of human relationships, but first and foremost, our relationship with God. And its condition. When together in unity with our Heavenly Father, And we hear those words, you are with me always. Possessions are shared. Because, and we hear those words, all that is mine is yours. And we realize the sharing of possessions signifies the unity. The unity. One heart. One soul. When the property is divided, the separation of persons is expressed by each holding what is his own. Why did oneness of heart and soul trump ownership? Grace. Not ownership. Grace. We read in chapter 2, verse 44... The totality of believers, the very first Jesus people, characterized this way. All those who believed were together and had all things in common. And then again, in the verse of our focus this morning, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own. We are to show the depth, the triumph, and even the unity of God's grace. They shared everything they had. NIV. Everything they owned, they now shared. Only grace can do that. Look, this isn't about capitalism. 
And this isn't about socialism. This is about God's grace. This is about God's grace in its effect within the church, which is where God's grace should be most apparent. I asked you earlier just to set aside the challenge, the moral challenge of comparing ourselves to them and to gaze, to stare at the grace of God. For it is when we see His grace and we move beyond admiration to appropriation when we claim it for ourselves, not just claim as though to get, but claim as to realize, to reckon, to experience His grace in Jesus Christ. And so I say these words, generosity is not a duty. It's a symptom of God's grace. Take your pulse. Check your vitals. But don't come to me. It is the cross that opens our eyes. At the cross, grace, grace doesn't get us ahead. It gets us together with God. And in the sweetness, in the place of God's comfort, In that togetherness is His grace. And we see it. You're never apart from the grace of God. Never. Even if you don't know Jesus, you are never ever apart from the grace of God. It warms you. Each breath you take acknowledges it. We are products of His grace. But in Christ, at the cross, our eyes are open, our hearts are open. And as we fathom who we are and what we are and how we are and how it is all dependent upon Him, Generosity, grace, great grace, issues in gratitude. How many of us have lost the exhilaration of recognizing God's care and daily provision? How many are instead control freaks? 
without joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. Trying to own and control. If that seems like a perceptive diagnosis, it's just because you've joined my club. Stare at the cross, at God's grace, and you will see God's grace everywhere. For the cross redeems our praise through the acknowledgement that God is for us. And the cross screams that. Some of us remember uh, Alex Haley. He was the author of a book that became maybe the most talked about book in the consciousness of our nation because it was made into a movie and uh, at the time more televisions were tuned to that movie than any other previous television production. In his office, he had an odd picture, a picture of a turtle on top of a fence post. To why, Alex Haley answered, every time I write something significant, every time I read my words and think that they are wonderful and begin to feel proud of myself, I look at the turtle on top of the fence post and remember that he didn't get there on his own. He had help. I get the point. Although if I were a turtle, I don't know if I'd want that helping hand. (laughs) A friend, um, not my own, had an unusual password on his smartphone. Pro nobis. What's that about? He was asked. He said, that means Latin. That's Latin, meaning for us. And he began to get choked up. And his acquaintance wondered why would two Latin words create such strong emotion? And when he composed himself, he explained that after walking through deep personal pain, And through that pain, a sense of separation from God, a sense that God had turned His back on him. In fact, part of that pain was the divorce of his parents. It shook him. He assumed God didn't care, that God had given up on him, and as it turned out, he found hope. When he realized that in the person of Jesus Christ was the ability to see God is for us, And he personalized that in a way that brought healing to his soul. When he realized that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the supreme expression of God's grace and most personal, 
And those two words, pronobis, for us, symbolized that God was for him. The picture on our wall is not a turtle, but a man. Not a fence post, but a cross. Not the symbol of a helping hand, but the very hand, heart, and person of God. Martin Luther said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. Ownership. But whatever I placed in the hands of God, that I still possess. At the cross. It's there that we see the grace of God. It's there that we appreciate that alone can disarm us and unify us. For we realize that we all stand on the same ground, the ground of Jesus' death for us. And when we reflect upon that, we fathom that, it touches us ever so deeply. Because we realize that when someone is rude to me or to you or when there is a tick that annoys us and begins to fester and it begins to become an obstacle to fellowship. A repeat annoyance. Or someone speeding on the freeway. Insensitive to where we are. Or a clerk that's unkind. Those are minor. Maybe acknowledgement, advance, a promotion that hasn't come. Someone who's taken credit for our work. Someone who hasn't appreciated the quiet, silent service at great personal cost. We could multiply them, couldn't we? And yet, every one of them and every fault and flaw that we could multiply, God has forgiven. He has brought to us the prized possessions of His family and heaped them upon us in all of our selfishness and ownership and possession-making. And He's given it freely. And when that touches our heart, when it touches our soul, there's no color. 
There's no class. There's nothing that we haven't already been forgiven in kind character or principle. And it creates within us a respect and appreciation of grace so that grace is not possessed but grows and goes on living and breathing and touching others. Will you stand with me? I know that sometimes I get pretty serious. Some things touch me very deeply. But I, as I've told you before, deep inside, there's, a, uh, there's more than that that's on the surface. There's, a, there's really a carnival in there. Um, and and that, it, that's there too because God's grace brings great joy. Thanksgiving, appreciation, just, wow, you, you just gurgle with appreciation and you realize how rich you are. And there is that joy and that happiness and that sweetness. As we give thanks this week, I do wish you a happy Thanksgiving. I'm going to pray for us. If you want to pray with me at the close of the service or any of our elders or pastoral staff, we invite you to come. Uh, Pray for someone else. Pray for yourself. Thank God. Whatever it is. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your cross. The cross that you bore. The cross that you accepted. And everything that came with it. It is a supreme example of your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. And Father, thank you for being for us. May we, each one, take it to heart in a way that causes us to rejoice and to be of one heart and soul because we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Happy Thanksgiving.